So I went from being Little Miss Runner burning bucket loads of calories to Little Miss Tai Chi not burning very many calories at all. Uh, and my eating remained identical across that period and my clothes got looser and looser and it completely fried my brain. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome to another episode of High Performance Health. I'm so, so excited to introduce you to one of my favorite women's health experts. It is the amazing Dr. Libby Weaver. She has been a huge inspiration to me in my own journey back from um, burnout, from solving my hormonal issues like endometriosis and PCOS. Um, She is an absolute expert in women's health and metabolism. And so she just shares so much wonderful information in this podcast. I'm really excited for you to listen to it. Um, So let me introduce you to her. Dr. Libby Weaver, if you haven't come across her yet, is over on the other side of the world. She's based out in New Zealand, um, but she is a 13 times best-selling author. She's a nutritional biochemist, speaker, and founder of the food-based supplement range BioBlains. Um, now, armed with an abundance of knowledge, scientific research, and a true desire to help people regain their energy and vitality, Dr. Libby empowers and inspires people to take charge of their health and happiness through her books, live events, and online courses. She is a respected international speaker, and her expertise in nutritional biochemistry has led her to share the stage with no less than Marianne Williamson, Sir Richard Branson, and Tony Robbins, as well as many other thought leaders. She is regularly called upon by television and radio as an authoritative figure in the health and wellness industry. With a natural ability to break even the most complex of concepts into layman's terms, Dr. Libby's health messages embrace her unique three-pillared approach that explore the interplay between nutrition, emotions, and the biochemistry of the body. And this is just one of the main things that I love about Dr. Libby is the way that she integrates this fully holistic approach to health and really digs into the emotional side. And I think you're going to get lots of aha moments when you listen to this episode today. She's an absolutely wonderful woman and I just really, really enjoyed chatting away to her. So without any more delay, let me introduce you now to the amazing Dr. Libby Weaver. So I am beyond excited today to be joined by Dr. Libby Weaver, who is a nutritional biochemist. She is a multiple um, times best-selling author. She has a fantastic book called Rushing Women's Syndrome, which really helped me resolve all of my stress and burnout problems. And I've just been a great fan and avid consumer of your work, Dr. Libby. It is wonderful to have you here today and to share it. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Angela. Thank you so much for for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive in. So I guess the best way to kick off actually foundationally is with your three pillars, because they just really are such an amazing framework um, for women's health. So should we start there with just outlining what those three pillars are? Absolutely. Yes, with pleasure. So I I established three pillars of my work quite a long time ago now, and I look at everything through these lenses. The three pillars are the biochemical, the nutritional, and the emotional. So when I talk about the biochemical pillar, What I'm looking for is the inner workings of the body. So 
Every single second, there are literally billions of biochemical reactions going on inside of us that create how we feel and function and how we look. And we don't instruct them. They all just occur. However, they need nutrients for every, the body needs nutrients for every single one of those reactions to happen. So let's say there's a, let's just call it substance X and substance X needs to get turned into substance Y. That's one biochemical reaction. And then substance Y will get turned into substance Z and then on and on the cascade of changes continue to go down a biochemical pathway. But let's say for substance X to turn into substance Y, you need vitamin B6 and magnesium. And if you're deficient in either or both of those nutrients, then substance X will start to accumulate and then you won't have enough substance Y. So when, and when you've got the right amount of substance X in your body, everything with your health is fantastic. But if substance X starts to accumulate, as it would occur in this example, maybe it behaves more like a poison to your body. So you start to get health problems because there's too much of this thing in your blood now. And then also because you now don't have enough substance Y, the thing that X was supposed to be converted into, you don't have enough substance Y now and maybe you need substance Y for great energy or restorative sleep or for a happy, calm, even mood. So in other words, there are consequences to these shifts in our biochemistry, but we're not taught to see our health in that way. So that's the biochemical aspect. Then the nutritional aspect is where I explain to people the foods and the nutrients that are essential to make all the bits inside of us work efficiently. And then the third pillar is the emotional one, which is where I encourage people to answer the question, why do you do what you do, even though you know what you know? Because it sort of makes your eyes roll around in the back of your head. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of education that's going to lead someone to polish off a packet of chocolate biscuits after dinner. No one's going to do that thinking, oh, I feel really fabulous after I do this. We don't necessarily understand why we do it, but it's nearly always emotional. So probably one of my favorite things these days is diving into that and helping people see what's really there. Yeah, and we'd, I'd love to do that with you today. Um, in terms of first, let's focus on the nutritional aspect, because this is really interesting. Why just gone really blurry? Um, this is really interesting area um, because people are really, and particularly women, are playing around a lot in my experience with different diets at the moment. So they are kind of focusing on should, and, and normally they're one form of an elimination diet or another. So it's kind of like, shall I go on the ketogenic diet, which is in itself highly restrictive? Shall I do intermittent fasting to, to some extremes? You know, people are flashing it up on social, aren't they? Oh, I've achieved a 20-hour fast, a 24-hour fast. And often what I've found is these things things can actually have quite deleterious effects on women's hormonal health. Um, yeah. And I was just curious for you to sort of share what you found in your work in terms of the impact and how actually as women, we should really be eating. Firstly, Angela, what I would say is I don't think there's one way for all of us to eat. I do think it's individual. And however, what I will say that I think applies to everyone is that the way we need to eat needs to be based on whole real foods and when I say that, I think what so many people have become unaware of now is that so much that's on offer to us is essentially ultra processed food. And it's food that, and I put, should really need to put the word food in inverted commas because it's not really food. It's made up of substances that are synthetic. Uh, so many of them are man-made and they didn't even exist 80 years ago. So uh, there's so much food now that's on offer that isn't even really food. So I think the way we need to eat needs to be based on whole real foods because that's what gives us all of the nutrients 
and bioactive substances we need to make all of the inner workings of our body work. So, for example, when uh, so when a food is growing, when a plant food is growing, it will develop substances inside of itself to, de to defend itself from pests. Now, when we then consume that plant, we the, the, the substances the plant developed to defend itself from pests behaves like an antioxidant in our body. But when that plant, if it's sprayed, it doesn't need to develop those natural defence mechanisms against pests because the spray does it. So then when we consume it, it doesn't contain the antioxidants that it's supposed to. So, so much has changed with our food supply. But coming back to your point around restrictive diets, I think they've existed for such a long time now. And I know when I was at university, uh, it was the low fat era. So uh, we then across, the, across that low fat era, the waistlines of the Western world got bigger than ever before, but no one sat back and said, oh, well, there's now a, you know, a fast food outlet on every on, on most corners of, of the world. Um, no one looked, sat back and looked at that. They all said, well, it must be the carbs that are bad, the fat must be okay. And so then we saw the advent, we saw the beginning again of high protein diets uh, and now we mo we've moved into the, the focus being on a high-fat diet. So if, if you're old enough to have been around to witness this, nutrition information moves in about 30-year cycles. So probably like everything now, though, that's probably speeding up. But the, the high-protein diets, for example, they were first around in the 1970s, and then it sort of was about the early 2000s when they came back into fashion. So food information, I think, is and diet trends are always going to come and go. And so rather than getting caught up in a fad, I think it's incredibly important to be so focused on nourishing your body and giving your body what it needs. I still think very sadly a lot of women... The, the driver behind their choices with whether it's keto or intermittent fasting or whatever, whatever they're drawn to with, with changing the way that they're eating. I think very sadly for so many women, the focus is still on weight loss or weight management. It might be like staying the way they are now or losing 20 kilos or 40 kilos or even just two or five kilos. I think that's tragically still the focus. And I do my absolute best in all of my work in my women's health online courses, in the events that I run, I do my absolute best to get women to shift their focus away from their weight to focus on their health and energy because we do not want it to be a health crisis that wakes us up to get us to take care of our extraordinary earth suit that allows our soul to get around on this earth and have these extraordinary experiences. You don't want it to be a disease diagnosis or a health crisis that wakes us up to that. And sadly, for so many women, that's what it takes so I think my ultimate message with food is you want to be focused on nourishment. You want to be focused on creating the best health and energy uh, for yourself possible. So a great question to ask yourself if you're confused about food is, will this nourish me? And if it's a whole real food, the answer is usually yes. And if it's highly processed, the answer is usually no. But I often like to, I, I like to qualify that statement these days because there are people who take nutrition information to absolute extremes. So they hear that something is bad, you know, it's not good for them. And so, and it's why I won't use the word clean eating, because I think that for people who have a tendency towards disordered eating, if they hear the word clean, they then think, well, everything else must be toxic and they can become quite frightened of food. So I worry sometimes when I say 
ask the question, will this nourish me? And if it's a whole real food, then it's a great choice. And if it's a highly processed food, then it's, uh, you know, you don't want to include that very often. I worry that people think, right, that's it. I'll just eat the whole real food and never eat anything else. But I think there is a certain personality types for whom that's quite dangerous. Mm. So I, I will often say, I think it's there are there are people who, when it comes to what they allow to go into their extraordinary body, they need to massively raise their standards and care way more about what they allow to put in their body. And then there are other people at the other end of the spectrum who have a tendency to restriction and they're, they're very frightened of food, essentially. They probably need to relax and eat some hot chips every now and again. <laughs> not, yeah. not that often, but <laughs> just a little, you know, often. just five times a year be really good for their mindset I think to, to just relax because there's there's no level of health when someone when you're that frightened of something so I, I worry that that's ultimately what's behind these all of these food fads yeah that's so true and it's kind of I think it's orthorexia isn't it that um yeah. people are basically experiencing where they can't eat anything that isn't really really healthy um so, and in terms of, we, you talk quite a lot in your work about liver detoxification because that's so important and it's so key, isn't it, for particularly women in their 40s who are going through that kind of second teenagehood effectively, the perimenopausal years. If they're not detoxifying that excess estrogen and hormones, they can have really unpleasant symptoms. And obviously pesticide use and things play a part in that. But how can we, how can we optimize our liver function so that we do have, everyone wants this glowing skin and vibrant hair and healthy energy, don't they? Yeah, very much so. And the liver plays such an important role in, in so many aspects of our health. It's, it's mind-blowing when we, when we pull it all apart. The, nutrient, the, the liver makes a decision about where nutrients go in the body. It's a storage house for some nutrients. But, yes, one of its primary roles is detoxification. So there, uh, let me just, I guess, elaborate a little bit on detoxification because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about what it actually is and then we'll get down to the nuts and bolts of looking after our liver and why that's so important. So detoxification is a process that's always going on inside of us. It's just that our lifestyle choices will impact how efficiently that occurs or not. Our genetics can imp impact even how, how effective that is. So, the, so detoxification is essentially a change process. It's a transformation process where the liver takes substances that if they were going to accumulate in your body, they'd be harmful to you. So the liver takes those substances and changes them structurally into, into a version that is less harmful for you so that you can then incorporate that new structure into your urine or your fecal matter and eliminate it from your body. So you want that to be as efficient as possible. And when we talk about liver detoxification, there are essentially three stages to it. Phase one and phase two occurs in the liver and phase three occurs in the gut. So for now, I'll just focus on phase one and phase two. So if you can imagine that, uh, imagine the liver is shaped like a triangle and the, there are pr the problematic substances that you might be consuming that the liver is going to have to change might be things like alcohol or trans fats in processed cakes and biscuits, muesli bars and deep fried foods. It might be synthetic substances like pesticides, medications, for example, might be things you're absorbing through your skin, through makeup, through skincare. But the liver also has to change the structure of substances that we create inside of ourselves. So as you mentioned, estrogen, uh, our sex hormones, and also even cholesterol. So the, the 80%, when you have a blood test for cholesterol, your liver has actually made 80% of that cholesterol. But I'll, because you brought estrogen up, I'll use estrogen 
uh, as our lovely example to explain liver detoxification. So if you can imagine that you've made, across the menstruation years, we make estrogen from our ovaries, uh, from our body fat, and we make a small amount from our adrenal glands and a few other places in the body. But most of our estrogen production across the menstruation years, it's made in the ovaries. And so estrogen will then bind to an estrogen receptor in the body. And then once it's done its job, so once it's run out of puff, it hasn't got any power left, it, the estrogen falls out of the receptor site so that another high-powered new estrogen can come along and bind there. But the old estrogen, when it falls away, you don't just get rid of it out of your body. Its structure has to be changed. It has to be detoxified before we can get rid of it. So if you can imagine that it arrives at the liver, imagine it arrives at, at a structure that looks like a triangle and it travels along a pathway and it's, which is phase one detoxification and imagine its structure gets slightly changed. It then gets to choose one of six pathways to go down in phase two liver detoxification and once it's done that, its structure's changed again and then it's ready to be eliminated in your urine or your faeces. But the challenge for so many people is, I think, is that their phase one uh, detoxification is off, for a lot of people that's quite efficient. And the phase two pathways, a good way to picture it is that it's like traffic all banked up on a motorway or before COVID times, it's like all the aeroplanes trying to take off from Heathrow. It's, <laughs> there's just this banked up traffic. And if you can imagine that instead of the estrogen moving through the liver rapidly, phase one, change, phase two, change, then it's gone from your body. Instead of that happening efficiently, everything slows down. So it goes through phase one, but then it can't get into the phase two pathways because we've been throwing down, we've been consuming too many biscuits, we've been having too much Chardonnay, whatever our, whatever our things are. So the phase two pathways can be very congested and there's nowhere for the estrogen to go. And it can't. a good way to picture it is that it can't hover around in the middle of the liver. So imagine that the liver has a trap door and it releases this slightly changed form of estrogen back out into our blood and starts to recycle it. And that's what we don't want. So it can also occur that you might have really good liver detoxification and the, the estrogen then gets delivered to the gut for phase three detoxification. And if you imagine the estrogen gets delivered to the gut, nicely sealed up inside a little envelope, and there is a, there's an enzyme that our gut bacteria can make. It's, we don't need to worry about the big silly words, but I know some of your listeners will like them. It's called beta-glucuronidase. That's the enzyme. And our gut bacteria, not so good gut bacteria will make it. And so even if your liver is doing a really good job and you've delivered your estrogen to your gut and it's ready to be eliminated, it's all sealed up beautifully in this little envelope, the beta-glucuronidase can open the envelope and then that's another mechanism through which we can get estrogen recycling. And that's how gut bacteria, our gut microbiome can influence that. So there's a few different spots where estrogen metabolism can go really awry mm -hmm. and we can end up with way too much total estrogen in our body. And we can also end up with forms of estrogen that are very concerning. They're very active. Uh, they've been linked to reproductive cancers when they're in excess so in other words, the health of our liver is so incredibly important to not just how we feel and function and look today, but also to our longevity and our body's ability to prevent some pretty major diseases. So what, what does it love? It loves plant foods. It loves green vegetables in particular, the brassica vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, kale, Brussels sprouts. 
they contain a substance, uh, broccoli in particular, and broccoli sprouts contain a substance called glucoraffinin. And then we have another enzyme that our gut bacteria makes called myrosinase, and it can convert the glucoraffinin in the brassica veggies into a wonderful substance called sulforaphane. And sulforaphane has antimicrobial properties. Uh, it's been shown to be highly protective against estrogen-sensitive breast cancers. Uh, so it's a really beautiful substance. So the brassicas are wonderful uh, for our liver health. We also, the liver also needs amino acids that we get from our protein foods. Uh, and it loves sulfur that we get from garlic, onion, uh, shallots. It's in egg yolks. Uh, and there's also some in those beautiful brassicas as well. So when we eat a wide variety of whole real foods and not too many of what I call liver loaders, that's a, they're very important steps to take to look after our liver. There are also some beautiful medicinal herbs. Uh, I'm a big fan of using herbs as well to support women's health. Which you use, don't you? Herbs and oils and things in your, in your work. You've got your own range. Yes, the herbs I do. Yes, yeah. I do. In, in New Zealand. Yes, in New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Um, and so looking at then, because this, this was really uh, interesting to me, I watched, I think it was a YouTube video of you giving a presentation where you were talking about um, when, when you were much younger and you'd studied for like 14 years, I think, and then you started working at a retreat. And as a student, you were running a lot and you thought that this was. The, the needed way really to run on a daily basis to keep that slim lean physique which you have to this day it always looks it always looks so incredible um and then when you were running the retreat you didn't have time because it was quite far from your house and you started doing was it qigong or tai chi tai chi i think it was yeah, yeah. and and that you felt that you were never in better shape now this is something that i just really wanted to share because i speak to so many people who reach that block of feeling like what i was doing before isn't working anymore and their natural instinct is one workout a day is no longer enough. I need to do multiple classes or go for a run and then come back and do something. And actually, a lot of the time, less is more. What have you found in relation to that and, and women's bodies and, you know, achieving that ideal body composition? Mm, so, yes, that experience changed my life. I can see, I mean, I was, I went, when I was at university, we were taught that the calorie equation was the only thing that influenced body shape and size. And you get out and start working with people and you learn very quickly that that's not the case. Uh, you meet people who are very good at restricting calories and they still don't lose any body fat. They don't lose weight. In fact, sometimes it goes in the opposite direction. So it was what I was noticing in my patients uh, that really led and, and also what I experienced when I went from running a minimum of an hour a day. And I would have sworn to you, it's fascinating to look back on because I would have sworn to you that I wasn't doing that for weight loss or weight management. I was very content with my, with my body but I can see now in hindsight, I ran like that because it was so ingrained in me in my education that you had to exercise intensely to, to maintain the way that you are, to basically be able to eat. And it's why I feel like well, it's one of, it used to be one of the drivers of my work. And it's certainly uh, one of the reasons I think that my work connects with women, because I think so many women still think like that. And it breaks my heart because they live in this world of, I feel like I've got to eat like a tiny little bird and I've got to exercise like a maniac to be able to maintain this or to be able to lose weight, whatever that they think their goal is. So that breaks my heart. And it was, so when I went from running over an hour a day uh, and then, as you say, got a job running, a health, working in a health retreat and I had to leave home very in the dark and get home in the dark. So I wasn't that obsessed that I was going to run at 3am uh, before I went to work. <laughs> 
I started teaching Tai Chi, uh, which is essentially a moving meditation. You don't burn many, many calories when you're when you're doing Tai Chi. Uh, I did that for half an hour each morning with the guests, and then would take the guests who hadn't exercised uh, in a really long time on what was called the easy walk. So it was twenty minutes on flat ground, and I didn't break a sweat. So my point is, I went from being Little Miss Runner burning bucket loads of calories to Little Miss Tai Chi not burning very many calories at all uh, and my eating remained identical across that period and my clothes got looser and looser and it completely fried my brain. And it was that experience coupled with what I was noticing in more of my patients that led me to go back to my geeky biochemistry textbooks with the question in my mind, what leads the human body to get the message to burn fat and what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to store fat? And I put those answers into the first book I wrote, which is called Accidentally Overweight. She's going to quickly interrupt today's show to tell you about my favorite, favorite supplement for reducing stress and anxiety. It is the original chill pill or nature's value. And I'm not talking about anything like cannabis or marijuana. I'm talking about magnesium. It's a completely underappreciated mineral that really helps to reduce stress hormones, enhance mental well-being, stimulate the production of GABA, and potentially even lift things like depression. And I absolutely love taking Bioptimizer's magnesium. I take two at night before bed, and I take another one in the morning, and it just helps me get a wonderful night's sleep pretty much every single night, which just makes you feel amazing. Barring, obviously, when my dog might wake me up or one of my children. Um, now, you can get a cool 10% off Bioptimizer's magnesium breakthrough by going to buyoptimizers.com forward slash Angela and entering code Angela10 at checkout. That's buyoptimizers.com forward slash Angela and entering code Angela10 at checkout. And then let me know how you get on because I'd love to hear about how it enhances your recovery from exercise, your sleep and your kind of mood and anxiety levels. So that's buyoptimizers.com forward slash Angela and enter code Angela10 at checkout. Now let's get back to the podcast. To date, I've found, and what I've written about in Accidentally Overweight, there are nine factors. Uh, and certainly our nervous system and our stress hormones play an enormous role in it. So let me just dive into that a little bit because I, I think it resonates for so many women and, uh, and, and what you're talking about when they feel like things have plateaued and now they've got to do two workouts a day and then that doesn't work either. Mm. So uh, when so there are three stages to the stress response. The first stage is when adrenaline is elevated. So that's very early on. You can equate it to a balloon popping or a car driving out in front of you and you suddenly have to slam on your brakes. So obviously we, know, we all know what adrenaline feels like. So if you think historically, so science suggests humans have been on the planet somewhere between 150 and 300,000 years. And it's only in the very, 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 very recent past that adrenaline has meant, for, for all of human history until the very recent past, adrenaline has always meant that our life is literally in danger. And it's only very recently that when we have adrenaline in our blood, it may not be from danger. Because what leads us to produce adrenaline these days, and some of your listeners are going to want to block their ears right now, what leads us to make adrenaline these days is caffeine. Yes, sorry, everyone. Uh, and it's our perceptions of pressure and urgency. And it's the way we unconsciously worry about maintaining the approval of others. 
So in other words, other, it's caffeine and primarily psychological stress rather than a, a threat to our life the way that it always has been. And so when we think about because it's coming from our psychology, because it's coming from the way that we think, it's constant. So we really are the first generation of people to have constantly, relentlessly elevated levels of adrenaline and it changes our chemistry. So the first thing adrenaline is supposed to do is elevate our blood pressure or alter our blood pressure to prepare us to escape from the danger that the adrenaline is saying our body is in. The next thing that happens is our blood adrenaline will, will make sure that the blood supply that's normally so fantastic to our digestive system, it will make sure that it's diverted away from digestion to your periphery, to your arms and your legs, because good blood supply in your legs especially is going to allow you to run away from the danger that your body is getting the message that you're in. So digestion is compromised. And certainly down under in Australia and New Zealand, about one in five women have irritable bowel syndrome. Now, sure, food can play a role in that, absolutely, but so does the stress response. And it's very rarely looked at because we don't know how to look at our stress. We just think it's how life is now, which I want to round back to in a minute. Uh, and then the third thing that, that starts to happen when we have constantly elevated adrenaline levels is it starts to change the fuel that your body perceives is safe and appropriate for you to use. So in any given moment, the body is always making a decision whether to use glucose or fat as its fuel. We're always using a combination of both. But right now, is it 50-50 or is it 80% glucose and 20% fat? Or is it 70% fat and 30% glucose? So we're always in a ratio of using a certain percentage of those two fuels. And when we have elevated adrenaline, because your body's getting the message, your life is in danger, it needs to have available to it a fast burning fuel. And so out of glucose and fat, take a wild guess, which is your fast burning fuel? It's glucose. <laughs> And so, so many people start, their, they their, their biochemistry is being told that glucose is their most effective fuel and they gradually start to lose the ability to use their body fat as fuel. So, because while ever you have high circulating levels of adrenaline, you're not going to, your body doesn't want you to use your fat. It wants you to use your glucose. And then of course, later in the day, after you've had a morning of you know, bucket loads of caffeine and 600 unopened emails and you've run late for a handful of meetings. So there's all, and you feel like you're worrying about what your colleagues think of you. So you've got all of this adrenaline circulating in your body because you've burnt through glu primarily glucose across your morning, your glucose stores, we store glucose in the body and our liver and our muscles as glycogen, those stores start to drop. And so your desire for sweet food has to be switched on so that you can top up these escape from danger kind of fuels. And that's one reason I think why people find it trickier to say no to poor quality sweet food in the middle of the afternoon or after dinner uh, because they've set themselves up for it with the stress response through the day. So that's stage one stress with elevated adrenaline. And then the other thing that that stage one stress does is it creates a whole lot of inflammatory compounds. So again, if we go back to the way humans have lived for most of our history on earth up until the recent past, because adrenaline was made in response to, for example, someone jumping out of the jungle at us with their spear. And in that moment we go, oh, and we've got to fight or flee. If you can imagine that the spike in adrenaline was just that, it was a spike. And as soon as the threat was over, our adrenaline level went back to baseline and we lived our life. We might have lived our life for three weeks before there was another threat. 
Whereas for people today, the adrenaline is they wake up in the morning, hopefully we think of something we're grateful for, but then we think of everything we've got to get done that day and we remember everything we didn't get done the day before and now that's got to try and fit into today. And just with those first few thoughts, adrenaline levels start going up and then you get to work and there's all these unopened emails and you've got, you know, a colleague ringing you saying, where's that work? I needed it yesterday, which I just want to pause on that point. When we get a phone call like that and a colleague says, where's that work? I needed it yesterday. We often don't hear what someone says. We hear what we think they meant. Mm. So all the colleague has done is ask for work, but we will usually create a story in our mind. My colleague thinks I'm lazy. My colleague thinks I'm inefficient or not hardworking or my colleague thinks I don't value my job. So we, in other words, we perceive some form of disapproval. And that's actually what makes that experience stressful because them requesting work from us is not in and of itself stressful. It's often the story we tell ourselves about who they now perceive us to be that leads that to be stressful. But that's a, that's a bigger can of worms. That is <laughs> but, it's so but, true. Yeah, it, it really is. It's a fun thing to dive into and... Um, but we've, you know, we've got these little things across the day that just lead our adrenaline to keep going up and up and up rather than the way it was historically, which was just a spike when someone jumped out at us. And then, yeah, we might've had three weeks, as I said, without any adrenaline. And so because of the pattern of adrenaline production today, we end up with all these inflammatory compounds zooming around in our body and the body knows that they're degenerative, uh, and very aging from the inside out for us. And so thankfully, inside of us, we have some very powerful anti-inflammatory substances that can go to work. Our body naturally produces anti-inflammatory substances, and one of them is cortisol. So we then move into the second stage of the stress response because you've got all this adrenaline creating all this inflammation, and now your cortisol level has to increase to act as an anti-inflammatory and cortisol is our chronic stress hormone. So we only produce cortisol when the stress has gone on long-term. And historically, long-term stress were things like floods and famines and wars. And when we think about all of those scenarios, food was scarce. But in modern times, our long-term stress tends to come from things like worrying about our relationships or our bank balance or our health or the health concerns we might have for a loved one. But the body hasn't yet learned to discern between the cortisol we would make if there really was a famine and the cortisol we make when we're worried about how much money we have. It's all the same to the body. Cortisol simply means long-term stress. And because that long-term stress has always meant there's no food left in the world, one of cortisol's jobs is to slow your metabolism down. It's actually a catabolic hormone. So catabolic meaning it breaks your muscles down. And the reason it does that is because muscles use more energy than body fat. So the body in its wisdom, wants it thinks there's no food left and it wants you to still be alive once the food supply has been reinstated. <laughs> and so to do that, it needs to slow your metabolism down and it does that by decreasing your muscle mass and increasing your body fat levels. But it will be very confusing to a modern woman who is still eating and moving the way she always has, but now her clothes are getting tighter. Mm -hmm. It won't make any sense if she believes the calorie equation is the only thing that creates that scenario. So cortisol has a very distinct fat deposition pattern. You get fat around the middle and you grow what I lovingly call a back veranda. So you get back fat. And the reason the cortisol thickens you up on your torso is because all of the organs that keep you alive are all housed inside other than your brain. They're all housed inside your torso. 
And if there really was a famine, they're going to need protection and warmth and nourishment to get you through these lean times. So your body has this extraordinary wisdom, but your body responds to the information you give it. So if you have all of this long-term stress, because we're in stage two stress now with elevated cortisol and we've still got elevated adrenaline because we, we haven't addressed that, you get all these metabolic changes, which leads to body fat increasing. It's, these are survival instincts. So they're always going to override how much you eat and how much you move. And then if some people stay in that second stage of the stress response long-term, whereas others go into the third stage of the stress response, which is when cortisol levels go very low. So on top of everything I've just described, you now have lost all the anti-inflammatory actions of cortisol. So you now get very stiff when you go into the third stage of the stress response, which some people will call adrenal fatigue. It's become known really as HPA axis dysfunction. So hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. Others will refer to it as burnout. One of the aspects of burnout is these very, very low cortisol levels. So you lose the anti-inflammatory protection. So you're very stiff. You feel like you've aged 10 years overnight. There's a deep, unrelenting fatigue. So it's not just, oh, I'm tired today because I worked hard yesterday. It's every day and the tiredness is deep in your bones. And people who experience this worry that they're never going to feel like themselves again. Mm. So you, you can recover from all of it. But so much of our, well, our actions and our behaviours are driven by our beliefs and we often don't know what we believe about ourselves. We're very good at knowing what we believe about things outside of us. We know what we think about that person or that situation or that political party. But if I said to you, who do you have to be to be loved by a particular person, it's a lot harder to identify that because it's all tied up in how we see ourselves and our beliefs come through in our language patterns, but we can't hear that they're beliefs because we say it and we think it's real. So we don't even realise that we're speaking of perceptions rather than, uh, and, and so we don't see them as beliefs. So it can be tricky to unpack that, but uh, it's it's a very worthwhile thing to do. And uh, obviously it's, incred- it's amazing to witness people recover from that stage three stress. But that's they're just some examples of, of things that will impact Uh, metabolism and whether your body is getting the message to burn fat or store fat. I have an online course for women where I go into all the nine factors. On on how to burn fat, which is so important, isn't it? Because I think particularly for women as well, and this is the thing that makes me the saddest in a way, and I did leave a successful career, you know, as as a partner in a corporate law firm. So I am one of those women that came out that found it really difficult to combine with children. But I think that our perception of what's going on, as you say, you know, I was in an environment where we used to leave our suit jacket on the back of our chair if we went out for a drink with friends so we could come back. So (laughs) this was when I was a junior lawyer, so the partners didn't know. And you were still in the office at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. But that perception is really real. And you are so, you feel that stress. And then I think it just compounds, doesn't it? Because women, we're the primary carer for the children. Then your children start growing up. They're sort of going into adolescence. That's what I'm experiencing the beginning of with mine now. And they have their own set of problems and drama. And uh, yeah, it's, it's that balance. But you're right, really, what women are doing when they're just almost punishing themselves with saying, right, well, now I must do two workouts a day. I must go for a long run. I must fast for 16 hours and I must do a really strict elimination diet. That is just actually raising adrenaline and cortisol higher and higher, right? Which is completely counterproductive. Mm, It Um, is. 
I know as well, one of the things you talk about, because I want to come on to the beliefs in just a moment, is energy as well and mitochondrial health and the importance of muscle mass. And that kind of ties in a bit with, and, and this is what I talk to people a lot about, is we lose, I think it's three to 8% of our muscle mass per decade if we're not deliberately strengthening our bodies. Um, what what have you found then, just to kind of finish on, on that um, on that um, exercise metabolism and energy pathway, what, what is the ideal sort of exercise routine? Like what would you do or with your own, I know you don't practice in terms of seeing patients anymore, but what is that kind of ideal balance? I, I spoke to Dr. Stacey Sims about it, you know, the author of um, Raw and Women Not Small Men. And she very much feels from her research that particularly as women get older, we need to create this polarization where it's like, let's be low and slow and enjoy walks and yoga and keep it light but then sometimes just go really hard, but to keep those sessions short so that we're not elevating cortisol too far, too high for too mm. long. I'm just curious what you found. In yes, it's a very, that's a very wise approach. I think that we need to tune into ourselves. So rather than follow some kind of prescription from someone else or some sort of old-fashioned model that we might have of I've got to burn calories and work really hard, that's a fast way to burn out with all of the things that women now juggle. And so I think there are times, so our focus on building muscle mass is incredibly important because from the age of 30 onwards, as you said, Angela, if we don't do anything to counteract it, we start to lose our muscle mass from 30 onwards. So uh, weight training, I think, is very important, but I do agree that it's very important to do it in a way where you're not pushing yourself to the point of exhaustion because then that's counterproductive. You'll end up making a whole lot of stress hormones that goes against what you're trying to achieve. I also think that if someone's in, in stage three stress where their cortisol levels are actually very low, restorative practices are the most powerful thing they can do because they, their body needs to get the message that they're safe because we need to remember adrenaline says you're not safe, which has a big flow on effect to our thyroid, our adrenals, our digestive system, our ovaries. Uh, so when we have to create a sense for the body again that it's safe and a breath and, and breath focused practices do that. So what I meant to say when I talked about the Tai Chi and there are many breath focused practices, when we do long, slow diaphragmatic breaths the way you do in Tai Chi, in meditation, in restorative yoga, for example, when we breathe diaphragmatically, you communicate to your body that you're safe because you activate a part of the nervous system called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the beautiful calm arm of the nervous system. And when we, when we are living on adrenaline and we're doing short, sharp upper chest breathing, that drives what is called the sympathetic nervous system response. And so many rushing women, uh, when I wrote rushing woman syndrome, uh, essentially it's sympathetic nervous system dominance. It's as if you get stuck with that sympathetic nervous system activated, your breathing is usually very shallow and rapid and it just perpetuates the whole stress response. Whereas the diaphragmatic breathing, the restorative practices communicate to your body that you're safe again, which is incredibly restorative for your energy, to your nervous system, uh, and also to your body feeling safe to use fat as a fuel because when you're not producing huge amounts of adrenaline, you can use your fat efficiently as, uh, as a fuel again. So it sounds counterintuitive to women who are used to go, go, go to think, what do you mean? I could do yoga and use my body fat more effectively. I'm not burning as many calories. No, no, there's so much more to it than that. You want to communicate safety to your body because when the 
when inside you, the chemistry knows it's safe, you'll use your fat very effectively as a fuel. So I think as far as exercise goes, I always look at what is, where's the person at? So stage one, stage two, stage three of the stress response. And also what do they want to get out of their exercise? So the three things I personally identify as wanting to get out of exercise, I want strength because I always want to be able to carry things. I love gardening and really, it's really satisfying when you can lift something really heavy and just manage it all by yourself. That's very Absolutely. satisfying to me. <laughs> yeah, so I, I want to I maintain my strength. Uh, I want flexibility. I always want to be able to put my own shoes on. I never want another human to put my shoes on. I want to keep my driver's license forever. I don't want to have it restricted because I can't turn my neck anymore. So I think flexibility is the second thing I always want out of my exercise. And then the third thing is energy. And I want to qualify that because sometimes we will get energy from a gentle walk. Sometimes we'll get energy from a brisk walk. Sometimes we'll get energy from restorative yoga. So that's where that third one, I think we need to be very honest with ourselves about where we're at. If I've had a really busy, big week with a lot of tasks on my plate I might have chosen for my week to look like that, but my my week has had, there's been a lot of movement. I'm going to do restorative practices and maybe some weights rather than I'm not doing anything that's go, go, go. Which is amazing because so how many women would actually say, oh, my God, I'm so stressed. I've just got to go and like do a kickboxing class to burn off this stress. Um, and it's really interesting what you say about the breath work because I've been experimenting it myself recently. And what I found is when I look at it on my aura ring, my heart rate variability overnight, I was always, because of the burnout, having very depressed heart rate variability, which obviously is showing that the vagus nerve isn't operating as well. And by doing breath work and affirmations, Literally, I'm talking in three to four days, I doubled my overnight HRV, and which is amazing. And you can see it all night. And then it's like flashing up going, you're ready for more than you normally are today. Like, it's just extraordinary. And it's not down to the amount of sleep. I can, I can be a bit underslept. It is literally down to exactly what you're saying, just communicating safety to myself through affirmations and breath work. And it's just transformational. And I just, That's yeah. That's stunning. That's stunning. Amazing, Good isn't it? You isn't it? Um, yeah, amazing. And just to be able to share this with people and, and help them do the same. Let's talk about beliefs because this is an, I wouldn't say, well, I think it is unusual. I think it's fairly unique when you meet someone like yourself who is so science-based, but so spiritual with it. Because really these paradigms that we have, isn't it? This 95% subconscious is what informs and leads to the actions. All those behaviors you talk about, why you didn't know how you ended up at the fridge and ate whatever you shouldn't have eaten a whole tub of ice cream um, is down to those beliefs. Um, It's such an integral part of, of your work, I know, and such an important part to success. How can people start to understand how this is driving that behavior? So... A couple of things. I want to let me just start with a story because I help. I think it helps to put this whole context, this whole thing in context. So, a lady I looked after at one of my week, women's weekends many years ago. Now she was sixty years old when she turned up, and I always say, "How can I help? What would you like to get out of this weekend?" And she said, "Well, I'm here to lose weight, Libby, but I know why I'm overweight. It's because I can't stop eating cake after dinner. So, if your only solution is to tell me to stop eating the cake." I would have already done it if I could, but I, I know it's that's my problem, but I can't stop. So hopefully you've got some other ideas for me. Anyway, she took part in the weekend and there comes a point where 
I've talked to people up and, you know, for hours and hours over this Women's Health Weekend. I've talked to them for hours about their physical health. We've talked about headaches. We've talked about sinus pressure. We've talked about reflux, constipation, diarrhea, bloating, what their menstrual cycle's like, what was menopause like. So we've gone through all these physical scenarios. And then I will often ask the question quite, I'm giving you all my secrets now. I will ask the question out of the blue, are your parents still alive? And I think what happens is because I've been talking about physical health up until that point, I think they think when I ask that question that I'm looking for a family history of something. So because the answers I usually get are things like dad died of a heart attack, mum had cancer. So I get those sorts of answers. And sure, I'm very interested in family family medical histories, but what I'm actually looking for in that moment when I say, are your parents still alive, is their response to me bringing their parents up or whoever raised them? Because it's very, it's usually obvious pretty quickly whether there's a world of chaos or a world of calm back there. So this this particular lady, uh, it was very obvious there was a big thing there. And so I actually spoke to her separately and I said, do you mind sharing uh, what happened? And she said, well, my mother died giving birth to me and my father hasn't spoken to me since I was 14. And I asked her to elaborate on that. And she said, well, I was born in Ireland. She said, literally in the middle of nowhere, we lived on a big farm in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't see any neighbours. I had four big brothers. The nearest one to me was 13 in age. So there was a really big gap. And obviously without my mum, I was the only girl there. But she said, I really loved it and I was good at school and I helped with the house. But then when I was 14, my father wrote a letter and he put me on a boat and he sent me to New Zealand to live with an elder, with an, uh, a distant aunt. And she said, and I never heard from him again. Now, our beliefs drive our behaviour, which is so important. I'm going to say it again. Our beliefs drive our behaviour but we usually don't know what we believe because it's it's tied up in our language but I'm trained to listen for it and she gave me guess she gave it to me straight away she said he loved my brothers enough to keep them he didn't love me enough to keep me so you can imagine that as a 14-year-old girl having grown up with only dad and not mum and then out of for her out of nowhere she's put on a boat and sent to the other side of the world with a letter of introduction to her aunt, you can imagine how she is going to try to understand that scenario and the story she's come up with is he loved my brothers enough to keep them, he didn't love me enough to keep me. But you can that's a belief, but she thinks that's the truth. Mm. So she can't hear that she's telling me the belief, but I, can, I hear that as, as a belief. She's made that up. He didn't sit her down and say, I really can't stand you. I'm sending you to New Zealand. He didn't do that. He wrote a letter and he put her on a boat and he sent her away. Now, you can completely understand how she's going to come up with that as an explanation for what happened. But when, so her challenge is that she eats cake after dinner, too much of it, and she does it pretty much every night, and yet she's wanting to lose weight. Now, when we make choices with food, that we know don't serve us, it's never about the food. It's the the best way I can explain it, the best way I can say it so far, and I'm forever trying to evolve this, but it's the way we distance ourselves from the way we perceive things are when they're not how we want them to be. 
but she's not conscious of it. So she doesn't lie on the couch at night going, dad doesn't love me, I better eat cake. She just doesn't understand why she can't not eat the cake when she really wants to and needs to. So does she feel like a sense of, do you think, discomfort at the point you get the craving for the cake? Because it's so common in people is an, or, or any sweet or salty food. Are they just feeling out of alignment at that point? Something's off and they think, oh, I fancy this. So there, well, there's an immense discomfort. I think for some it's the beginning of experiencing emotional pain, but they're so used to not allowing themselves to go there because they literally think they're going to die by allowing themselves to feel that because I'll, I'll explain the, the way our nervous system worries that we're not going to survive. I'll explain that in a second. So I, I honestly believe humans have got beautiful hearts. I know their behaviour doesn't always demonstrate that, but I believe they've got beautiful hearts. And so when she's sitting there saying to me, he loved my brothers enough to keep them and he didn't love me enough to keep me. I said to her, what if the opposite was true? And what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? And she looked at me very confused and she said, well, I've never thought about it like that. And I said, well, you think about it from your dad's perspective. He was already a relatively elderly Irishman and with a daughter and you said you were good at school and he will have wanted you to get a way better education than you were ever going to get living so remotely in Ireland. You were 14. You were probably just about to start menstruating. He'll have wanted you to be supported by a female across those years. And he won't have known how to do that probably. So what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? And again, she said, I've never thought about it like that. And I said, well, you, you said he's still alive. Is there any way you could get in touch with him? And she said, I could probably get a phone number. And I think still to this day, this is one of the most extraordinary things I ever witnessed, had the privilege of witnessing. She found the courage inside of herself to ring him up and ask him why he sent her away. Wow. She's, she's 60 and he sent her away. She hasn't spoken to him since she was 14. And he gave her a version of what I just said to you. Wow. Which makes so much sense, but she couldn't see it when you're saying that, right? Of course. Um, but we but don't even realise. Yeah, just feeling unloved. Mm -hmm. but you don't walk around going, oh, I'm so unloved, I'm so unloved, I'm going to eat some cake. It's not conscious. And so what we want to do is, well, well, what part of why it's set up like that, I think, for us as humans is as little babies, we can't survive on our own. Someone has to care enough about us to give us food and clothing and shelter to provide us with those things so that we can literally survive. Other animals from the minute they're born, they can survive on their own, but someone has to care enough for us. And so when we're very little, we start to, we, we work out that we need those needs met. When our tummy grumbles, we need an, an adult to bring us food and the, the discomfort, the fear, the uncertainty, all of that gets taken away when that adult brings us food and we're cold and then they give us a blanket and the same thing happens. We return to, to balance. We return to homeostasis, to safety. And so we then come to link the provision of the food and the clothing and the shelter. We come to link that to uh, we know that we need it to survive and we realise that we must maintain the approval of those people so that they keep giving that to us. And so not in a manipulative way at all because it's completely unconscious, we start as little humans, we start to try things on. So we start to try to work out what keeps us safe, what keeps us getting the food, the clothing and the shelter, what keeps us maintaining their attention. And this is how most of our personalities get constructed because we, we hold on to the things that got our needs met. 
So we then grow up believing that there's a certain way we need to be for them to approve of us. And until we examine it, we will usually keep living in the pursuit of the approval of others and we don't even realise that's what we're doing. And we've become, we've constructed ourselves in a way that we think keeps us safe and literally allows us to survive. But as adults, we know that a life with love in it, if you like, is beautiful, super soul nourishing, but we can get by without it because we can get our own food and clothing and shelter. But most adults still live their life as if, I don't want to say love because people link it to intimate love and I don't necessarily mean that. I mean approval. We, we, we live as if approval is essential to survival and it's not. It's not. So with, when I do these, this work with women, I, t- I talk about a concept called our forehead words and I, I explain it that it's as if we have these words written across our forehead and they're the traits we need other people to see in us. And when I do it with rushing women uh, who, by the way, are always the kindest, most beautiful humans on the planet, when I say, how do you tell me, how do you need other people to see you? They go kind, thoughtful, selfless, then they'll move into other departments and they might say independent, capable, intelligent, punctual, or others will go down the road of perfect, which is a wrap. If perfect comes out when you do this exercise, you've got to go down that rabbit hole and define what perfect is for you. Or you might need others to see you as the biggest ray of sunshine that ever walked into a room. But whatever it is, it doesn't matter what those things are. You just need to know what your forward words are. You need to... You need to sit. I encourage women to sit with pen and paper and ask themselves, how do I need other people to see me? And then the next time you're stressed, pause and consider, am I perceiving someone is seeing me in the opposite way to one of my forehead words? Because most of the time the answer will be yes. And so we have to, I believe that in starting to unpack the beliefs we've created about how we have to be, it's beautiful to be seen as kind and thoughtful if you value those things. But you just don't want to have, you don't want to have zero flexibility in how you can handle other people seeing you. Because if you don't have any flexibility, you will have a life of incredible stress because we will never control how others see us. And then we feel like we've always got to be a certain way rather than who we really are. And there's no greater stress than living inauthentically to who Mm. you really are. Isn't it like that expression, I am not who I think I am I am not who you think I am I am who I think you think I am yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I call it all that complaint back and it's like yeah it in my it's, head. It's I am I am who I think you think I am which is obviously controlled by the perception I want to control yes so for example I'm just curious with this lady because that's such an emotion wow that's baggage to carry around right that's just informed her whole life for those 60 years or 50 years since she was a teenager, when she was then eating the cake, that is giving her, I mean, it, it's so hard, isn't it? Because presumably immediate comfort, but then it's followed by guilt and shame because she's engaged in a behavior that she actually had told herself she was going to stop. So it's quite uh, like a vicious and destructive cycle because it really damages self-esteem. Um, once those emotional issues are brought to the horizon I'm not sure you can fix them as such can you but once they kind of come to the surface and she can understand it and maybe have a different belief do you then see those cravings subside yes completely so with this lady I'd never once talked to her about cake she just stopped 
eating it. She probably still had it when she went out for a cup of tea with her friends, but the nightly consumption, which was the problem, that just stopped. And it didn't stop because I sat her down and, you know, shook my finger at her and said, tut, 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 you need to stop the cake. Don't be so stupid. I would never do that. I would never have done that. But it's I want people to see that just sitting someone down and telling them not to do something that they already know in their heart that it's not ideal for them to be doing, it gets you nowhere. You doing Doing the work, the inner work, which is, usually really hard but incredibly worthwhile that's where all the gold is when you find these beliefs because the behavior then effortlessly changes and I don't say that lightly so a lady another lady I worked with she'd been through horrific trauma which I won't talk about and after the trauma she was left with twin little girls who at the time were four years old and this lady was on television and had a very public profile and she'd gained a lot of weight and so she, was, she came to me for weight loss again and she, uh, she said when I first went through the trauma, she said I got really skinny and she said I won't deny it. She said I really loved it. But then within six months I felt like I was still eating and exercising the way I was before but everything just got tighter, and which is the high adrenaline moving into the high cortisol, slowing her metabolism down and increasing her body, body fat. And she said, I used to really look after what I ate, but she said, now I don't. And she said, I can eat cheesecake after dinner, biscuits, chocolate, lollies, you know, you name it. There's nothing off, out of bounds now. And she said, and I've actually taken a sabbatical from my television work because I'm, I've become so self-conscious of how I look and I'm the sole breadwinner for my girls, so I have to get back to work. But even with that as a driver looking at, you know, making money financially so I can look after my girls, that's still not enough to get me to stop, you know, the cheesecake and all the things she was having after dinner. And so I said, tell me your ritual. What do you do at the end of the day? Well, I have dinner with my girls and then we play a bit and then I put them to bed and then my pattern is I clean the kitchen and make it immaculate and it's not until all of that's done that I'm then allowed, I I allow myself to then have cheesecake was one of her things and I'll sit in the lounge with the tv and and that's what I'll do and so with her instead of because the trauma was so big it was going to be very difficult to uh root it was going to be very difficult for her to see herself as the love that she is I just knew that 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 would be a very long journey that she needs to probably it would be better for her to take that with a psychologist uh, and I was, she was seeing me to change her food behaviour. So I knew I had to do a little bit of belief work, but the journey for her was going to be bigger. So I, what I did with her was I said, okay, so tell me what when you want something, what do you really want? We did this exercise where I said put the girls to bed and then go out to the kitchen and make it immaculate. But before you're allowed to sit down and have your cheesecake, you've got to answer these four questions. And I got her to draw up the columns and have a little diary in the kitchen. And the first column says, what do I want? Well, I want cheesecake. And then the second column says, what do I really want? And usually your brain still goes cheesecake. Cheesecake. (laughs) (laughs) But you've got to push yourself because you've only just had your evening meal. You've only just had your dinner. So you're not actually physically hungry. You just, you want to eat something for an emotional reason. And so that's why you go, what do I really want? Well, I want a hug. I want companionship. Other people will say, I want to renovate the bathroom. 
I want someone to thank me for making their bed every day for the last 18 years. I want to have a baby, whatever it is, but you do the what do I really want column and then what they really want comes out. But it's still not even about having that. Then you answer the question in the next column, which is how would having that make you feel? Because we're completely governed by how we feel. Mm. So how would having that make you feel? Well, I would feel appreciated or comforted or loved, whatever it is, they're common ones. Uh, And so how else can you get that without harming your health? And so the strategy we came up with for this for this lady was she was to put her girls to bed, go out and make the kitchen immaculate, and then before she ate the cheesecake, she desperately needed comfort and love. They were That was what she was searching for. They were the feelings she wanted. And I said, so go and stand in the doorway of your little girls' bedrooms, and they shared a bedroom, and stand and watch those precious little four-year-olds sleep. And don't notice if their room's messy. Just soak them up and notice how one of them is probably overheating and she's thrown the duvet off and her hair's crazy. And then the other one, she's the one who needs, she still needs the night light and she's a little cold frog. So she's got the duvet all wrapped up around her chin and just stand there in their doorway for 10 minutes and soak them up. And at this stage, both of us, this my client and I were both in tears at this point. And the first month when she did that, she ate the cheesecake three times. Because I said, once you've done that, once you've stood in the doorway, if you still want the cheesecake, go have it. But this on that in that first month she when she came back to see me she said I only wanted it three times that so it was like a pattern interrupt but it also gave her the emotions that she was so desperate to feel magic. so that's a different road that's a different road into it but it that can is be magic really isn't it isn't hmm. that magic and you know what's really interesting is when you were talking about that I was thinking about what I do with my own daughter I was because we've had all the lockdowns and the homeschooling and all that obviously like three kids at home that was stressful trying to run my business and I was um, because of my PCOS I like not not all the time but intermittently I will put on a continuous blood glucose monitor and think well am I on track as you know originally I was prescribed metformin and things so I'm like am I controlling my blood sugar and when I'm stressed obviously because of the cortisol my blood sugar goes all over the place. And I was thinking, right, I know I'm stressed and everything that's going on. So we just did this like little game in bed where we were doing gratitude together. I'm so happy and grateful for. And then she was saying how much she loves mummy and I was telling her things. And then I left the room and it was magical, came out and literally my blood sugar just dropped. Like it was, it's, it is like, it's amazing, isn't it? When you see this kind of spiritual side of us, which we are spiritual beings in a physical body. And then you take and you actually see the science just backs up what we're saying. It just, and it's so immediate. It's so powerful. And -hmm. what you said that she didn't then eat the cheesecake is amazing. I'm really curious. I know um, I've only got a couple more questions because you've been so generous with your time, but I'm curious what you've seen in the other way. So some people actually go the other way and they're very restrictive with their eating patterns, you Mm -hmm. know, like so restrictive in terms Mm -hmm. of um, what what do you think is driving that? Because that often starts in the teenage years, doesn't it? Mm, same thing. It's all the way we distance ourselves from how we perceive things are when they're not how we want them to be. It's always, it's never about the food, even with severe eating disorders, it is never about the food. It's always that that distancing ourselves. And so it's, it's essentially escaping from emotion because humans will do more to avoid pain than we'll ever do to have pleasure. And so for someone with anorexia, they might, you know, they might need to gain weight. If someone uh, is obese, 
they might say, they might come to someone like me and say, Libby, I'm so uncomfortable. Uh, I'm so frustrated with myself. I know what to do, but I don't do it. So can you just tell me what to do and write me a plan and I'll follow it? But in this example, the weight loss is their pleasure. They've linked it to, to, to joy and pleasure and happiness. And I know that the way that humans, are, the way we're constructed is we will do more to avoid pain than we're ever going to do to have pleasure. And it makes sense when you think about, obviously, our evolution because we had to escape from danger before we could go and have the cashew nuts we found on the tree. So we always had to get, our focus was always on avoiding the pain. But now, thankfully, we're relatively safe and it's not really physical pain well, we try to sit avoid that, of course, but it's not so much the physical pain we're trying to avoid, it's emotional pain. So we will do more to avoid emotional pain than we'll ever do to have pleasure. And so that's, it's another, it's, it's, it's why we've got to start to look at the, the beliefs essentially that get hardwired into our nervous system before we're seven years old because they end up running our life. <laughs> and we don't even realise we've taken a belief on. So let's say you're four years old and dad's your hero and every day when he comes home from work, he picks you up and plays with you and tickles you and that just feels so good to you, makes you happy, but it also makes you feel really safe. And then one day he doesn't do that and he comes through the door and with real intensity in his voice, he says, go to your room and you do as you're told and you can hear your mother and your father are out in the kitchen and there's raised voices, they're speaking with intensity, they're bashing, he's bashing his fists on the table. When we're young, from an emotional maturation perspective, we're egocentric. Sadly, a lot of people don't change. But when we're four, when we're little, we're supposed to be egocentric and all that means is that you think, you're, you think that the people in your world are the way they are because of you. So when they're happy, you link it to whatever you've just done. You don't realise you're doing that, but that's part of how the personality gets created. You, you link uh, what their happiness to something about you and it starts to get ingrained. But unfortunately, if the adults in your world are not in a good place, they might be loud and aggressive or they might be very quiet and withdrawn unpredictably. So when that occurs, and it's not when it occurs once, it's got to happen a few times usually for it to start to get set up in our nervous system. But when it happens in this example I've just said, when you've been sent to your room, because you're egocentric, you can't see into your father's world and see that he was just made redundant and his intensity is because he's now so concerned about how on earth he's ever going to pay for your education. You can't see into his world and see that that's what's going on for him and understand his behaviour from that perspective because your brain is not yet set up to, to be able to do that. You you're egocentric. You think it's all about you. And so as you sit there in your, you might be in your room and at minimum, you feel confused or uncertain. Some children in that situation might feel unsafe. You will do anything. Your body will do anything to get you back to homeostasis, to get you back to balance, to get you back to safety. And so in that moment, the only possible road for our brain to take at that part, at that stage in our, in our growth is to create a belief in our own deficiency. And so we, we try to understand our environment, no matter how calm or how chaotic it was when we were little, we have to try to understand it. So your only option with your mental, the way you were set up mentally at that point is to create a belief that there's essentially something wrong with you. And that's where we get our not enoughness from. So I'm not good enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not loud enough. I'm not quiet enough. I'm just not good enough. 
I'm not enough the way that I am. But we don't sit there when we're four and go, oh, yes, I'll pick that belief because it'll be beautifully dysfunctional by the time I'm 48. (laughs) We don't do that. We just absorb it to try to understand our environment. And then if it, it's not just once, but if it happens over and over or or a number of times, it then solidifies because it's a part of our brain that goes looking for evidence of what we perceive is true. So you know what it's like when you want to buy a new car? you suddenly see that car, you see it everywhere, <laughs> but you've, all you've done is decide that's what you want. And if you're a girl, you go, oh, it's a sign, I better get one. But all you've done is primed your brain to find that car. It comes from the reticular activating system. And so once we have these beliefs as little people, we then grow up and we just find evidence for how it's true and we never, ever see the evidence of how it's not true. So that's why it's tricky to, to find the beliefs, but it's it's a magnificent journey to to do it. And you can you can catch yourself in action and even just starting to ask yourself when you say something, is that is that really true? You know, you someone might have polished off a packet of chocolate biscuits after dinner and they'll go, Oh, I ate too many chocolate biscuits. I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic, I have no willpower. We don't ever pause after we say something like that inside of our head and go, is that really true? And I encourage people to do that because most of what we think isn't true. We make up most of what we think. Now, the first part of the sentence is true. I ate too many chocolate biscuits. That part might be true. But what if you put a comma in that sentence and keep it going, I'm hopeless, I'm pathetic, I'm no, and I have no willpower, that's just all the judgment you're passing on yourself and it's that judgment you pass on yourself that's going to lead you to go back and do the chocolate biscuits again the next day. Yeah. So. We need to bring, if we can just go, I ate too many chocolate biscuits, full stop, and then bring curiosity to that scenario. Okay, I wonder what led me to do that. Was I actually hungry? Was my blood glucose low and I was really hungry and so I need to, I need to prepare a more satisfying lunch or dinner, whatever it is. So is it a blood glucose thing? Or no, actually, I can see that I had a meeting today And that person really hurt my feelings when they said blah, blah, and I put on a really brave face in the meeting and pretended like I I, I didn't take it personally, but I can see that I did and I'm really just trying to make myself feel better after my feelings got hurt today. Wow, that's fascinating that that's what led me to eat a whole packet of chocolate biscuits. That doesn't make that conversation with that colleague any better. You know, so why would I do it like that? So you start to bring curiosity to to your choices and that can start to, to bring some insight. Yeah, without judgment is so powerful. I think there's, I think it's from a course in miracles where it says, today I shall judge nothing that occurs. And I've tried that as a mantra some days and it is extraordinarily difficult to do, but it means that as you've done it, isn't it? And, but as you go through your day, you realize, oh my God, and how many, it's not really everyone else you're judging at all or isn't for me. It's myself continuously. And then you're like, well, there's the judgment again. And it's a really powerful exercise, isn't it? To start to understand how your drive, how your emotions are driving this behavior because you're like, did I really? Because you say things to yourself that you would never say to anybody else in a million years, do you? And like you were saying there, it doesn't mean you have no willpower because you can't resist a packet of biscuits. You're probably, you know, using willpower all day. Um, So final question for you, Dr. Libby, before um, you go. Because this this sense of pressure and urgency that you touched on as well, how do you manage your day? You are super successful. You've achieved extraordinary things in your life. And you're so giving in terms of your emotion and your energy. A lot of the people, it being high performance health, are high performers. And I'm curious how you 
manage your energy and your time and what techniques you use that in terms of just running your life, your calendar, like what does a day look like for you? How do you achieve that sort of high level of productivity without, without effectively burning out? Uh, well, (laughs) I don't, um, the first thing I would say to that is most of it comes down to how I think. So my days to answer the part of your question, what does a day look like? They're, they can, they're so different. They can be very, very different. There's no, there's no typical day for me. The parts that are non-negotiable is the way I start my day. So it's always with something that fills my soul. I don't plan it. It's whatever, whatever I want to do. It usually involves being outside. Uh, It involves nature. So it might be observing the sky, the trees, the birds, whatever's around me. So it it could be absolutely anything. And sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. Doesn't matter. It's that there's this sense of awe and privilege that I get to be part of another day. And that sets me up with, it doesn't change obviously what I, what's on my list for the day. It doesn't change what I've got ahead of me for the day, but it changes how I show up. And there's a sense of spaciousness I get from that that filters across my whole day. And I had the crazy privilege of being a guest on Necker Island for, at a retreat Sir Richard Branson ran back in 2015. And there were a handful of speakers and about 14 guests staying. And I was brought on as the nutrition speaker through an organization called Business Chicks. And it was a crazy privilege. And I think, you know, we started, we're very good at studying disease and dysfunction, but I think too success leaves clues and we need to study that. And so I thought I was writing a book at the time called Exhausted to Energized. And so I interviewed people who were uh, attending this retreat and a lot of them were it's not my model for success but what I don't know how else to explain it other than a a fairly typical success model in the western world so they had you know incredibly successful careers they've been financially rewarded for for what they've done with their careers they had very healthy relationships. They had extraordinary personal energy. They were contributing back to communities and to, to other people, to other organisations. So, in other words, they're very well-rounded, successful people and very fulfilled. And so I interviewed them and asked them what they felt led them to be able to get so much done in a day because these people would get more done in a day than I think most people would get done in a week. And every single one of them had a morning ritual that they didn't compromise And for some, it was playing tennis. (laughs) For others, it was a cup of tea standing at the kitchen window of their apartment, just looking outside. So it didn't matter what it was, but it was a a little or a large, whatever you can manage space where you just do something for you. And that had a big impact on me. And so that's how I begin my day, most definitely. But to really answer your question, I think... I'm incredibly, I, I, I do believe, and you said it earlier, I want to look after my body. I often call it an earth suit because it's the only way my soul gets to be here and have this experience. And so when I, it sounds like, it probably sounds like a bit of a cliche and it sounds, you know, just like I'm flipping language around when I say what I'm about to say, but I find it myself very powerful. I honestly don't look at things like I have to do it. And if I catch myself thinking with that language pattern, oh, I have to do that and then I have to do that, I try to catch myself in that in saying that because I don't have to, I get to. 
and I, I really try to bring this through in the work that I do, we get to do all of this while we get our turn on earth. And when you talk to people who are dying and you ask them what they're going to miss the most in the world, they tell you the most ordinary things and they will tell you that they're going to miss their partner's face or the feeling of their dog's fur under their fingertips or the night sky. And we have all of that right now. So I, I think part of my own personal energy is letting myself have what I already have because I think that's what joy is all about and I think joy gives us an irreplaceable depth of energy. So I'm very connected to the, to the privilege of, 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 of life and that doesn't mean that sometimes it's not challenging and I, in all my work I do my best to help people see both sides of things. So life can be in, incredibly challenging and I mean seriously, not just because of a story we're telling ourselves, it can be incredibly challenging and simultaneously just mind-blowingly magnificent. But we tend to get fixated on one. Oh, life is very fill-in-the-blank right now. It's really amazing right now or it's, it's really tough right now. There's usually both beauty and challenge coexisting, but our brains will just focus on one thing and then we get stuck in the, oh, this is so hard, life's so hard or and we're just not seeing the beauty because it is always there, even when we're going through genuinely tough stuff. So our brain is so powerful and whatever we focus on is usually what we end up feeling and we can change that. Yeah, in that moment. That's so powerful. Amazing. Thank you so much. Let's, I want to link to everywhere people can find you, your website, your books. Um, I've read them all, I think. They're all amazing in their own way. They're just absolutely transformational for these reasons because I just love the way the science is combined with the belief systems and then the practicality of the nutrition. It's just phenomenal. Um, but please share and we'll link to it all in the show notes and people can come and find your work and everything and engage with it. Oh, Angela, thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world. Uh, so my website is drlibby.com, which is just drlibby.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Libby as well and on Facebook at Dr. Libby Live. Uh, I have a supplement company. We talked about it before. It's called BioBlends. It's really different in that everything is made from plants, from whole real foods and herbs rather than synthetic. Uh, so that's that's really fun and, and really special to, to get to do that as well. Uh, and I run a lot of online courses and online events and one day I'll get to do face-to-face -face things again. But at the moment, yes, I have a women's health, uh, a nine-week online women's health course that's online and then just little one-hour events as well on iron, perimenopause, things like that. So, yeah, it's, it's all there on drlibby.com. So, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I will link to all of that in the show notes. And the, the one-hour events are just brilliant on focused areas. I've... I've um... I've watched those. They're absolutely brilliant. You go into so you make you break down the science and make it so easy. So we'll link to all of that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a joy and a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of High Performance Health. I hope you are enjoying it. If you are, I would be so grateful if you would share this with a friend or friends or family that you think would benefit from listening to the podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you do subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. All the show notes will be over on my website as usual, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. And I look forward to catching up with you again next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. 
You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimise your mind, body and lifestyle. 